Fresh Art International presents conversations about creativity in the 21st century. This is Fresh Art International. I'm Kathy Bird. We're live streaming on Jolt Radio from Miami, Florida. No matter where we live on this planet, we find ourselves sharing a sense of imbalance and uncertainty these days. Experimental art, by nature embracing risk and precarity, can seize this moment to play a vital role in empowering us. Today we take you to a place where art meets the world. We delve into projects that connect with communities and environments, introducing curators and artists whose passion is social engagement. Their experiments in relational aesthetics participatory performances, interactive installations, community events, and inside-outside exhibitions invite viewers to become co-creators, to take ownership in the creative process. We'll begin with curator Jochen Waltz. In 2016, we meet to talk about his approach to organizing the Sao Paulo Biennial, titled Live Uncertainty. The international art exhibition stands apart from most. Free and open to the public, the biennial takes place in a legendary pavilion at the heart of the city's most popular park. Today we're taking you to Brazil for the opening of the 32nd Sao Paulo Biennial. I meet curator Jochen Waltz inside the pavilion that's been home to the exhibition most of its life. We're sitting in a room with glass walls, looking out onto Ibirapuera Park, a vast urban green space that surrounds this building. A team led by architects Oscar Niemeyer and Helio Uchoa designed this building and the park and an array of other venues to commemorate Sao Paulo's 400th anniversary in 1954. These days, up to 200,000 people a day gather here to immerse themselves in nature and culture. The International Contemporary Art Exhibition, free and open to the public, welcomes a huge number of visitors, many for their first encounter with art. Jochen Waltz and his team designed the layout of the 32nd Biennial to resonate with the park's spatial dynamic. I love the way you designed the biennial space, like a garden. If you look at the experiences from past editions, very often the Biennial has been structured on a more urban principle. So you create a corridor and you create blocks and halls and paths. In an urban logic, things do compare by size, which is, of course, something very different than the garden, because in the garden nobody would ever think that it's weird that you have a very big bamboo group and a small stone garden. You would never think that the small stone garden is so small. Or less important. Or less important, because you actually judge by scale and not by size. The idea of a scale, that everything has its own scale, is much more interesting. What we try to do is to take this logic into the commissioning process and into the development of an exhibition architecture that would actually allow for large presentations and small ones, each to their scale. And that allows for a visitor to have an, an experience with a very diverse form of art making on different scales. The logic and the methodology of the garden became a key. I love how healthy this 
biennial feels, considering the theme. Let's talk about the title for a minute. Mm -hmm. When we thought about uncertainty and how uncertainty somehow is a guiding principle in the arts, but is so little talked about elsewhere, and when it's used in other fields of society, then it's always linked to notions of fear or notions of crisis. Whereas in arts, the idea of uncertainty and chance and improvisation are very, very present. They're rather a guiding principle. Part of the creative process. Exactly. Part of the creating process through the eyes of the arts. One could imagine other ways to understand uncertainty as a guiding principle in other fields. If you think about uncertainty, you need to think very much about everything you took for granted and maybe that it's not so easy to take it for granted any longer and the forms of knowledge or the knowledge ideas that have been dominating our understanding of the world and our role in it maybe are also not so solid as we thought they were. To open up for an alternative idea of knowledge or looking at other forms of knowledge that may be complementary to ours and not necessarily mean the opposite to allow for contradictions, to allow for melting of different ideas, that's something that the artists do all the time. And appropriating ideas from, or concepts from different cultural backgrounds or from different science forms, that is something exciting that we wanted to talk about and bring in. Right, so it's, in a way it's a call to action, live uncertainty, exactly. right? Exactly. It let's works. just live it, let's do it, let's dive in. And exactly. it looks like all of these artists have Yes. I love how they've taken your, your challenge and what they've done with it. Uh, the earthworks that are inside. You know, I love how you described this morning how the light and the life from outside, you're inviting them into the space. And some of the pieces, that's very transparent, like Rachel Rose, mm -hmm. with the light from outside interacting with the video upstairs. Mm -hmm. I thought that was gorgeous. And then Anawana Holoba also will have that interaction exactly. with the outdoors. Was that throughout your idea as you were seeking artists that were aware of what's outside? There was a certain desire, let's say, from all of us curators to look at artists and practices that somehow at least are open to other forms of information and to the outside or to the other side or to this idea of an unknown dimension which could somehow feed into what we do. And I think then it became almost a kind of a uncertainty then also became a methodology to work with a lot of artists who we commissioned to do something, who we invited to develop a project and whose outcome is very much based on the discussions we had over the last one and a half years and who have responded in sometimes very direct and sometimes more distant but in different ways to this conversation and to a kind of changing reality also that we live. And I think the reality that we live and the world around in this country right now, I think you have an advantage being based here. You've invited artists to respond to political circumstances and today a protest interrupting the press conference. Mm -hmm. I don't speak Portuguese. Tell me what was happening there. The political instability over the last months have been kind of almost going in parallel to the development of our project. And 
I believe that, let's say, many of the themes that the Biennial wants to talk about or is talking about, be it the distribution of resources, be it other knowledge forms, being it allowing it for diversity or creating this plural space, the question of indigenous cultures, all of these aspects are very important in our curatorial project, let's say, from the very beginning. And they became more and more relevant. What is going on in Brazil at the moment is, of course, a, let's say it's a parliamentary political power dispute. But of course, there is another layer much, much more violent behind that. All about these questions it is probably about the resources, about the rights, about social equality, about privileges for some and not for others. What happened today was a protest. A manifestation by a group of artists rather spontaneously to organize themselves and use the platform of the press conference to express their standpoint. It's good that the Bayern can be this platform that allows for this form of manifestation and allows for a plural space where, where different opinions can exist, and it's fine. I think so, too, and I, I'm thinking about the fact that you're talking about privilege, and a lot of times people think of art as a privileged space, an art space as being a privileged space. But this biennial is free to the public, and it's very open to these political statements, as well as going out into the community this biennial? The biennial in Sao Paulo has a very specific characteristic, I would say, which is that it's probably one of the art events in the world that has the largest first audience with a first contact with art, which has to do with its location in a very popular park. There is a series of projects that are spontaneous. For example, the project of Opa Vibara, which will be activating several times throughout the exhibition period and different spots throughout the city a performance by Donna Kukama, which has happened in three different locations, one in a cemetery close to Avenida Consolação, one in the Museo Afro-Brasil, and one in the pavilion building of the Bayania. One performance for four days, non-stop, by Pope L. It's a mixture of some of the gestures you see in Festa Debutante and this protest manifestation actions. And it switches back and forth almost from the political to the romantic and back. So for some, the Festa Debutante is an outmoded form of coming of age. This is an extreme version. That's why his little pants. This comes from actually, I got the idea of countries having a civil function of parenting. And then the <laughs> citizens acting out or, you know, simply bowing under and doing as they're told. O Brasil de hoje, meus filhos dançam e dançam e dançam e dançam até que seus pés viram barro. The performance makes a loop inside the city, taking the same path each day. It's part of the cyclical nature of human. How do you say? It suggests more meaning because it has now a structure. What environments were you seeking to cross through? Working class neighborhoods, uh, neighborhoods that are more, in quote, run down. Gated neighborhoods, of which there are many here. Neighborhoods where there are people who just are hanging out in plazas. Neighborhoods where 
people are just doing their daily business, like Avenue Paulista is like that. Tons and tons of people, most of the times of day. You sort of wade your way through it. And there are certain streets here that where people are elbow to elbow and there's vehicles like two inches from you. So there's very dense, hilly neighborhoods that you have to fight your way through. And there are some that are just uh, very spacious. Um golpe, azar de vocês, seus bocós. Um golpe, um golpe. O que foi que eu fiz? Hope L wrote the lyrics for the soundtrack. Two hours long, the track features a male voice alternating with an atmospheric musical composition designed to transcend the big city soundscape. Popel worked with a team to achieve baile, a remarkable four-day endurance project that empathizes with recent political theatrics in Brazil. There have been lots of collaborations with different groups, be it theater groups, be it musicians, be it people who work with embroidery, different artisans, these collaborations actually allow for a totally new network, of course, also for the Biennial. So this idea of a very huge outreach and a very huge first contact to art is something extremely inspiring, I think, for all of us and for all the artists to think what this role is of art within society. The history of labor has inspired more than a few artists' projects at the Massachusetts Museum of Contemporary Art a.k.a. Mass Mocha. The museum grew from an abandoned industrial complex just outside the city of North Adams. Over the span of a decade, curator Susan Cross has invited artists to experiment in this historically rich setting. Some of her projects have altered visitor encounters with the architectural space itself, while others have forged new social experiences with its history. After inviting seven artists to create site-specific installations for a show titled Material Worlds, Cross organized a 2011 exhibition that sparked social engagement at Mass Mocha as never before. The workers, Precarity, Invisibility, Mobility, sparked a remarkable community response, resonating with intensifying labor issues that are tied to today's globalized economy. The time and place were a perfect fit. The former factory in the building that Mass Mocha now occupies was closed in the 1980s due to intense international competition that left nearly a third of the community out of work. The decline of North Adams echoes the demise of many abandoned factory towns in the United States and abroad. Many in these communities have lost a way of life due to advances in technology and a never-ending search for cheap labor. We're located on what we call a campus of incredible 19th century industrial buildings. It's sort of a rambling place with lots of courtyards and secret little spots. And I always tell people that when they are walking through and move from one building to the next, that they'll often get lost. And it's just like being in Venice in Italy. You have to sort of give yourself over to that. And you can discover so many things, both in terms of the art and also in the buildings. The history of the building goes back to the 1800s, and it was Arnold Printworks. They printed textiles. They would actually send scouts to Europe and 
identify some of the more popular patterns and come back and make them in the U.S. And it was a really flourishing business and had a big national profile. And then in the early 1900s, the business was replaced by Sprague Electric, which made capacitors, among other things. But that was what they were known for. And they, too, had a very big national profile. And both companies hired thousands of people from the city and really were part of the fabric of the city. So when the last few workers left Sprague Electric in the 80s, it left, you know, an economic and emotional void in the city. And Masmoka, the idea was born to take over this incredible historic space and create something new out of it and use the museum as an engine for a new creative economy. So many of the artists that come to Masmoka to do projects with us, they're, they're so excited to engage with that history, which is almost so timely as well. I mean, we're still working through issues of labor and how economies are changing. And it's a topic that I'm always thinking about. And I think it's in part because of where I am. This, this building keeps me in mind of workers' histories and the present. So that exhibition, The Workers, grows out of that present day knowledge that North Adams and the region is redefining its labor force and its economy, and it has this very rich history. It's also related to the material world in that some of those pieces, like Michael Butler's, he was dealing with Sprague Electric's history. Tobias Prutra, his piece was looking at a nearby kind of engineering marvel called the Hussig Tunnel, which was built in the 1870s. It was a technical marvel, but of course took a lot of labor and people died. In fact, his ghostly rendition of the tunnel was a sort of a nod to many of the ghost hunters who come up because it's supposedly haunted. That could draw a whole different audience. (laughs) Well, interestingly, those related to the workers, that show in a way grew out of material world in a sense too. But that show, the workers, really got us additional audiences. Suddenly, labor unions were calling me, and it was really interesting. That topic was very personal and striking to a lot of people who hadn't perhaps come to Massimoca before. That was a great way to engage others. In fact, one of the works in the show was a performative piece by Santiago Sierra, who does very emotionally intense and physically intense and sometimes very controversial works about labor because he kind of reenacts the problems of, of labor in his, in his own practice. And I've dealt with industrial labor a lot in different shows, but this piece was actually thinking about military workers. And I recruited a soldier, several actually, to perform in the space. And so that was another audience that suddenly became aware of the museum in a way that they hadn't before. How resonant could it be with the history of the community outside and the global economy, the competition for work, and the uncertainty of the future of what it means to work and what professions are going to be available and which individuals are going to feel like they're left behind if they're not keeping up with technology. All that must have resonated incredibly with the people who visited. It did. And some of the former Sprague employees work at Massimoca now in different capacities. Often we reach out to them and many came to that show and also were involved with the Bureau for Open Cultures project that was part of the workers. I invited James Voorhees to come and take over a building which we hadn't yet used. He did a series of programs and exhibitions and activities, one of which really dealt with Sprague's history and tapped into the memories of former employees who still live nearby. That engagement 
was so powerful. It engaged people on so many different levels, including with a beer garden, which was this wonderful way to get all the different constituencies that are part of our region who, you know, come from different backgrounds, but also nod to like intellectual salon. So while people were drinking their beer, there'd be artists or other thinkers talking about certain projects. And another moment within Masamoka's campus that just really welcomes the community. I reached out to James Voorhees to learn more about the Bureau of Open Culture, a nomadic curatorial project that lives to amplify how we engage with art, was a great match for the workers' exhibition at Mass MoCA. Let's describe the Bureau for Open Culture. What is it exactly? It's a way to gather a wide range of activity that is producing public-facing work that often connects or inhabits with different institutions to really think about how people engage with the ideas presented by artists and in exhibitions. It essentially encapsulates my practice that you could say is, is really dedicated to like interrogating and expanding like the behavior of an institution. It originated in Columbus College of Art and Design in 2007. At that time, there was a gallery, of course, and we made exhibitions in the gallery, but we also were making exhibitions in empty storefront spaces, as well as like, commissioning projects with hot air balloons that were in like open fields in Ohio, also producing a lot of publications. Often, an exhibition program is identified so strongly with a gallery. Bureau of Open Culture was just a way to gather this activity conceptually and geographically and under a single umbrella. Bureau has a sense of administration, of keeping order, of curating, and then like open culture really attempting to think more expansively about the different culture producers that are invited into the realm of contemporary art. Well, in the definition that I've seen of the Bureau for Open Culture, you suggest that, as I hear you saying, you're forging intersections among art, design, education, and consumer culture and pushing against the way institutions address and engage audiences. But don't you think that that way they're engaging has just been naturally evolving with contemporary culture? I think even over the last 10 years, the ways in which institutions connect with their publics are changing drastically. And a lot of this actually comes out of the 90s, initiated by artists who were categorized under relational aesthetics. So one might think of Rikrit Teravinisha for a kind of go-to of these artists who were pushing what kind of activity could take place in, quote, a white cube, meaning that you could actually inhabit it by consuming food together in the space in a kind of disorderly fashion that really suppresses that pristine space of the white cube. Over time, curators have picked up that activity to help push against how an institution behaves, and then increasingly more mainstream or large-scale institutions are utilizing like time-based activity and ways of gathering people inside the institution much differently than they did 15 years ago. Well, let's talk about how you got involved with the concept of the workers, precarity, invisibility, and mobility at Mass MoCA with the curator Susan Cross. I was living in North Adams. I was teaching at Bennington College, Art History and Critical Theory. 
it's a small community in the arts there, and I think Susan and I quite quickly became friends. She was talking about this exhibition, The Workers, and I, I really appreciated it because she understood also the different questions that Bureau of Open Culture was asking in terms of relationship with artists and the value of cultural production, and also these questions around precarity of the immaterial worker, how you and others and all of us is like this constant production of content, but what is the value of that, which is so different than particularly around Mass Mocha, Sprague Electric and people clocked in and worked in the space. They clocked out and they left. Now what's interesting is Mass Mocha is filled with content that is by artists and curators that's actually almost produced around the clock. 1861, Arnold Printworks is established under the name Arnold Harvey and Company. 1870, Arnold Printworks has 100 employees. 1872, fire breaks out, resulting in destroyed work and loss of profit. It was the morning of December 27, 1872, when Arnold Printworks was visited by a destructive fire. The principal building of Arnold Printworks was burned down. Instead of being ruined, the company rose from the ashes. After the fire, Arnold Printworks moved forward with steady and progressive strides under the influence of a master financier and scientific skills. Labor continued, labor was triumphant. 1905, city's largest single employer, 3,200 employees. 1942, Arnold Printworks closes. 1942, Arnold Printworks turns into Sprague Electric. Sprague Electric was a major component to the city of North Adams and the lifestyle of its employees. It employed 4,137 workers in a community of 18,000. It was the town's highest employer. The plant prospered during World War II and for a long time afterwards. There is no longer any way to distinguish between work and leisure or between economic activities and other aspects of human life. The workers was asking those kinds of questions and there was overlaps with Bureau of Open Culture. It progressed quite naturally of these discussions and overlapping interests. And Susan graciously invited us to inhabit a building behind the main exhibition spaces, a small building that became the headquarters for where we were for about four months at working as a studio. It became a shop where a collective called Red 76 sold local cultural materials from butter that was produced in Vermont to books and leather goods produced by people in Massachusetts. It also just became this site of constant production of culture and art and, and bringing people together. You expanded on the architectural space and the history of Mass Mocha, the building itself, the site as a manufacturing site by creating these opportunity to think about what that looks like in contemporary life. Yeah, and I think it speaks to many post-industrial towns today that have these amazing physical reminders of the kind of labor that took place in those cities and then how many of those are no longer used or used to a lesser extent than they were and how like this consumption of culture and art is often becoming a destination and also a source of economic sustenance, you could say. So it's a really interesting situation to look at from the you know, point of view of the role of artists and culture makers in these places and how they're almost the new workers. I think it's interesting how you built out this space for the public conversations, performances, installations, workshops, the little shop, 
spaces for visiting artists and writers, designers and thinkers to work, and a beer garden. That was really important. People come to the Berkshires. It's such a lovely place, particularly in the summer, and just thinking about how, I mean, Susan and others, we lived there, how nice it would be to sit at picnic tables in that grassy area along the river in the evenings. And in terms of consumer culture, I really like to think about how these very familiar forms, like a beer garden or a bookshop, are ways to unify people from very different backgrounds. How can like a form of a beer garden be presented so people can experience it just as a beer garden? And then also people can come there and because they'll see different advertisements and tabletop things stating of when like an artist talk will take place in the beer garden or a walk around the Berkshires learning about the different histories of the environment and the river that was changed by the Army Corps of Engineers. So the beer garden or a bookshop is a bit of a net to help art reach people who may not understand at first that that's what they're engaging with it became sort of a wayfinding device. Yeah, exactly. It led to knowledge acquisition. It led to experiences. It was a social space. You actually have a legacy. She tells me that the space has been claimed by another artist who's operating in a similar way, using that beer garden again. I've watched that transform over the years. That's so rewarding to think that we could be there and initiate something and another artist or the institution continues to build on it. I mean, it was such an unforgettable experience. And I think as sometimes happens in these things, it's a combination of the personalities of the artist and the time and attention we have to give to something and just also the undivided support from the institution, but even support meaning like challenges, like how the institution... Matt Wilkins and Susan were really engaged with how to make it better by asking lots of questions. I love that kind of working relationship. The exhibition unfolded in modules. One image that Susan shared with me, we see a sailboat that appears to be made of foraged materials, and the sail looks like a banner. That was done by Dylan Gautier and Kendra Sullivan. It was a series of boat-building workshops by a collective called Free Seas and they're based in Brooklyn. And they came up over a period of weeks and just looked around and thinking about what kind of projects they would like to do, how they would like to engage with the ecology of the area. And we held informal workshops with people in the area and then concluded the summer with a module of a a public boat building workshop. And part of that also was looking at the materials at hand and the banners and how they could be utilized for uh, repurposed for sales. That was such a rewarding experience because it was just like we're making these boats out of bamboo and also other recycled materials and wrapping the bamboo frames with the banners. But by that time, it was September, and we had really poured through a number of people, and we had just galvanized the community in a way that people were constantly coming to the event. And we built boats, we put them on top of the cars, and then It's so gorgeous in the Berkshires, and we just went up to North Pond, which was the destination during the summer, and spent the remainder of the afternoon on the lake with these boats. Did the sail work, actually, or were you paddling? They were paddling mostly, yeah. Still, the effect is, (laughs) the visual is fabulous. All the models had these particular themes that were guided by artists, and then we helped essentially produce them, and 
And I think in terms of your questions around engaging the viewer, I think that's the responsibility I see as a curator, as an institution, is how to see what the artist wants to do, understand how to communicate it to a public, and then begin to like round that public up over time so that they feel as if they have something at stake in what, what you're doing. The last thing I wanted to go into was this reading performance that took place that was using a script with quotes from original interviews with former employees of Sprague Electric, which is the factory that once occupied the building of Masmoka. That was a really special project. Cassandra Troyan, Nate Padovic, and, and then another photographer and an artist named Timothy Nazaro. The history of Masmoka and Sprague Electric is really fascinating of how it had transformed from a factory producing these electric pieces to what is Masmoka. We were just really interested in hearing more from the employees, many of whom had dedicated decades of their life to Sprague Electric. And we had informal recorded interviews of them, basically just reflecting on their time at Sprague Electric, as well as just the changes in Masmoka from becoming a a factory town to a post-industrial cultural production area. We recorded all those and interweave them with different transcripts from public meetings in Massachusetts in the 70s that was looking at like the crisis basically that was happening because so many factories were closing and a lot of the work was being sent overseas. We interwove parts of the transcript from employees with the more formal minutes of a government that was actually trying to deal with this crisis in the 70s. I was sort of the caretaker after Sprague Electric had moved. They left tons of desks, tables, filing cabinets, metal chairs. We put them out in the yard and we sold them. $5 a file cabinet, $15 for a table. It was probably because I was involved in the boiler room, and then I had enough knowledge of all the facilities, and also the building itself, because I was always wandering around for different things. So I knew, it, knew it every nook and cranny of the place. So they figured I'd be the one to close it down. In what ways did your involvement with the workers and your occupation of that empty space at Masmoka and your engagement with communities there influenced your practice moving forward? It reinforced some of the things I was aware of and just the importance of how this is something that one is producing within the realm of contemporary art that can be really complex, impenetrable. How can you make it accessible? How can you make an idea by an artist that is asking, say, about the ecology or this history mean something to a greater number of people without sacrificing the quality of the work. And I think it's a really fine balance that a lot of institutions are facing today. It really influenced my work at the Carpenter Center because before coming here, I was a director of the Carpenter Center for Visual Arts at Harvard, also thinking about how to connect the exhibitions better to the area so that they have something at stake in what you're doing. And we ended up opening a, a bookshop there with Berlin-based bookseller called Motto Books. I learned a lot from Masmoka that helped prepare for this project, meaning looking around at context in the Boston area and thinking about like who are the, what are the institutions and who are the people who would want to be involved in this by having something at stake in it, by presenting their books or creating a form that was open enough that they could contribute to. 
it was such a great learning experience and been part of the work I've done, the Mass Mocha Project. In 2012, curator Stephanie Smith traced the historical roots of hospitality as conceptual art practice with an exhibition at the University of Chicago's Smart Museum of Art. Feast, Radical Hospitality and Contemporary Art, not only displayed the history of this idea, but also initiated participatory events and offered meals in collaboration with local artists and communities. Smith continues to expand on her interest in socially engaged art as a curator at the New Institute for Contemporary Art at Virginia Commonwealth University. I'm one of the curators who's been doing this since I was essentially a puppy. I really started working in contemporary art institutions when I was in college doing internships, so late 80s, early 90s forward. There have been a lot of changes in the field during that time, and it's been exciting to see the ways that institutions are flexing their muscles to find new ways to support what artists have been doing for quite a while. Of course, we always follow where artists lead us. In my case, I was really fortunate to have an extraordinary example. I was working at the Contemporary Arts Museum in Houston, a wonderful non-collecting institution there as a curatorial assistant, at the same time that Project Row Houses was just coming into being, which is a truly extraordinary example of community-based, strategic, creative practice where you really do have woven into the bones of an institution an understanding that part of its function is to be working in steady, evolving relation with community. I love that because Rick Lowe, the founder of Project Grow Houses, has from the very beginning really understood what it meant to embed himself as part of a community and grow from that experience of knowing the people that live there and creating a space that responds to that population and stimulates them and invites others to share it. I just think he's amazing. Absolutely. And the teams of other people that have worked with Thrick over the years have also been really thoughtful in terms of thinking about what distinct role could that institution play within the particular arts ecology in Houston, as well as in relation to the specific needs and desires of their neighbors, as well as within international art conversations. I think they've been able to be really relevant in part by understanding that they have roles to play that are kind of overlapping roles within each of those spheres of activity and influence. That's certainly, you know, something that I couldn't have articulated in that way at the time, but I know that it was the great model for me and something that I continue to think about. Thinking about where we are in the field right now, there's just a huge uptick in institutional interest in supporting participatory forms of art making as well as performative work and recognition that in addition to the kind of quiet moments of contemplation that institutions might want to foster in relation to specific static works of art, which are deeply important and part of the work of museums to kind of create those kinds of moments and opportunities with depth and heart and meaning. It's also really exciting to think about the kinds of energy that can be activated when bringing time-based forms of work into institutional spaces and also participatory projects. In the latter case, there's sometimes really interesting 
negotiations that need to happen as institutions try to figure out how to be good hosts for those projects, you know, especially when they are both participatory and socially engaged. The institutions are really mindful of the ethical implications of the work that they're doing and how they're kind of holding relationships that are started so that it's not something that's being entered into just this catnip for millennials who are seeking participation and fearing missing out and those sorts of cliches, but actually substantive engagement. The exhibition you presented in 2012 encompasses both of those elements, the participatory and the temporality, the time-based engagement. That was called Feast, Radical Hospitality and Contemporary Art at the University of Chicago's Smart Museum of Art. And I found that project super fun, but also provocative. On the one hand, it functioned to create an opportunity for people to have encounters with static objects. And that ranged from sculptures to paintings to artifacts. And it allowed us to see a kind of long historical range of participatory practice, artist-orchestrated meals and kind of convivial experiences. We traced the history back to 1930 to what I would claim as one key point of origin. You could argue that there are others, but one key point of origin when the Italian futurists, a group of radical artists working from the late teens forward, they created the Futurist Manifesto of Cooking, and it was distributed in the most public way possible as a text in a newspaper. <laughs> but looking from that point forward, so we were able to make an argument about a long thread of activity within a range of contemporary art practices, but to kind of link them back to this early point and to use the capacity of the museum to make that kind of argument and to let it unfold through a series of encounters that one might have moving through a sequence of galleries where you would encounter text and objects or the kind of mood and atmosphere of an installation within the gallery. But then we also took advantage of the participatory nature of many of the recent projects to stage events that happened inside the museum and out throughout the city that gave people opportunities to encounter the work in a, a kind of full sensory way because the show wouldn't have made sense if it were only to be looked at. It had to also be something that could be smelled and tasted and consumed. What happened in the museum provided kind of historical ballast and what happened out in the world or in the museum and the kind of time-based way provided life and energy and vitality and a rich experience. Well, tell me about the context being in a university, a University of Chicago, a university museum. How did that influence or did it influence the way the concept was developed and presented? You know, university art museums and university art institutions more generally are really one of the great platforms in the U.S. for experimental interdisciplinary work. Certainly, they provide both spur and support for exhibition making that is intentionally experimental and boundary crossing, and that brings together people that have a rich range of knowledge, experience, and perspectives. I wanted to talk about a few of the artists you invited to participate, and let's start with the Astor Gates. He obviously is a huge influence in Chicago through Dorchester projects and all that he's done to work on the South Side and develop projects that integrate that community with the rest of the city. 
four feasts, we conceptualized a project that took two different forms. So really thinking through this question of what aspect of the practice could be well-supported within the gallery setting and what would be best held on-site at Dorchester Projects, which is a group of houses on Chicago's south side, a fairly quick drive from the University of Chicago and the Smart Museum. So there's a kind of geographic proximity, but they're not quite right next to each other. And these are houses that, you know, the Astor has been purchasing over a number of years and turning into sites for all kinds of different creative and community-based activities. And soul food and cooking and meals have been part of the ways that he's activated that site. It was an installation itself within the museum. There was a direct connection to what happened at Dorchester Projects because we arranged to have a series of dinners that Theaster orchestrated and hosted. It happened in one of the houses, this very warm space, all you know, this beautifully reclaimed wood, long table, skinny table, so people are all kind of close together. And we had somewhere between 20 and 30 people at each of these dinners. And the guest list was half curated by the SMART and the after working in collaborations, have an interesting mix of people. And then half of the seats at the table were by chance, by lottery. So you could submit your name online or by coming into the SMART, and then we would have these drawings to select the, the other half of the attendees. And so these dinners were beautiful. They were sequenced with a real sense of ritual. The Soul Food Pavilion is kind of an idea to me. It's the opportunity to make a space, convert a space, transform a space into one where um, amazing food interactions can happen. And they'll happen around um, uh, the question or the conversation about the foods of black people. So what we did is we took this catfish and we gently smoked it. So that it stayed moist. You know, the history of foods in America for African Americans is a really complicated story. Chow Chow kept coming up, which is this collaboration of many vegetables and this pickled essence and allows many dishes to really, really take on a character that is familiar in the real deep and heart of the South. Foods represented a kind of inferior relationship to a really dark past. So these are greens that are cooked with smoked turkey and the whole cakes. When people were working in the fields, they would mix this cornmeal together and cook them on the sides of the, of the steel of the hoe. The dinners for me, they give me an opportunity to leverage ritual to ask hard questions maybe in ways that people don't normally talk about in Chicago with, with groups of people who don't normally get together, right? It was the place where my people learned passion. The actor would plan them and punctuate them with different moments of musical performance and collaboration with his musical collaborators who are called the Black Monks of Mississippi. Um, they would have sermons <laughs> where he would invite colleagues, friends, neighbors, other creative practitioners to speak in whatever way made sense to them. And then he was working in collaboration with a great set of chefs who were really committed to soul food, connected to a restaurant called MK, great restaurant in Chicago. And 
the folks who were involved in preparing different aspects of the meal would also explain the dishes. And then in between, we would have conversations that would very often dig into topics connected to the history of soul food, the way that art functions in society, what was going on on the block, a whole set of topics that felt joyful and sorrowful and urgent and real. Well, I also love how you brought in the relationship with the Fluxus movement by inviting Alison Knowles and her identical lunch into the conversation. Yeah, that was really a special part of the project. We chose to focus on her identical lunch project, which involved eating the same tuna fish sandwich (laughs) over an extended period and creating a focused ritual of that practice. So at the SMART, we did two things. We had the lunch out on view in the gallery. We had it available on the menu in our cafe. You could go and purchase that particular tuna fish sandwich prepared according to Alison Mull's specifications and eat that lunch and participate in her conceptual artwork. I thought it was funny. I was reading the story of the identical lunch and that she herself just was in the habit of ordering the one thing she thought was edible at a certain diner and she would just order the same thing because it was safe and then it became a performance. Yeah, no, it's beautiful. I mean, that's the genius of Fluxus overall is that focused attention on small aspects of everyday experience that can be transformed into something extraordinary through that precise care and just through the reframing potential. Well, I think you achieved it beautifully. Just by nature, this exhibition engaged with viewers on so many levels. It was fun to watch people engaging with the show and... You know, also really exciting when the exhibition traveled, we were able to collaborate with several other institutions to send Feast across the country after it closed at the SMART. And in each venue, the institution both hosted some of the projects that had been part of the SMART Museum's original presentation and kind of hosted new events. And then they also customized and brought new projects in that were relevant to their audiences and institutions. What did you take away from the Feast experience that has influenced your projects since then? Overall, the major thing that I took away from Feast was a recognition that there's great enthusiasm and appetite on the part of audiences right now to engage with projects like Feast that create opportunities to dig into social issues that touch on topics that are percolating within society and that give people opportunities to have a range of experiences that include more traditional ways of navigating institutions, but also open up new kinds of experiences that allow them to connect with art and with other people in surprising ways. Well, that leads me to where you are right now. With Declaration at the ICA, you've interpreted that philosophy in a big way in this inaugural exhibition. We just opened our doors to the public for the very first time. This is brand new, non-collecting contemporary art institution at Virginia Commonwealth University. The response so far has been very, very positive, both in terms of press response and public engagement. Richmond is a city that hasn't had an institution of this scale solely dedicated to contemporary art. So it was really exciting to see So many people coming out to be part of our opening events. We were at full capacity. So we had 6,000 people through the ICA. It was 
the most diverse crowd I've ever been with in a visual arts institution in the States in all of the ways that you can think about diversity and really engage crowds of people looking at art and connecting with each other and absolutely responding to not only the more traditional works, but also really engaging with a number of participatory and collaboratively produced works. There's art that speaks in many ways for looking, for listening, for participating, and that you also have projects that collaborate with Richmonders. It felt very important to declare our intention as an institution to be a place that is working at the edge of the new, and that also we wanted to create projects that reflect many of the ways that art is functioning now. So that includes painting, photography, of course, but also sound works, media works, participatory works, performance, things that are inside the institution and also extending out into the world. We also wanted to declare our commitment to the socially transformative power of art and artists. So all of those aspirations are made manifest in the show. And Marinella Senatore has developed Esmon Radio Richmond, which is the first U.S. presentation of her ongoing project, Esmon Radio, which has been presented at the Palais de Tokyo and other venues outside the U.S. And it's essentially an installation that has a very particular design look and function. It's set up to function as a recording space. So it occupies one of our galleries. And during public hours, visitors can drop in and use this recording setup to make their own declaration. I was just going to say they can come and record a declaration. They can indeed. And so, yeah, so people are leaving their recordings and they then get uploaded by Marinella's team onto the Esmond Radio podcast site um, that happens on an ongoing basis over the course of the exhibition. And then they will remain there as an archive after the show closes. Hello, my name is Marinella Senatore. I'm uh, talking from Italy in Rome, where I'm based. And since 2006, I work within the field of contemporary art, making participatory and socially engaged projects involving entire community in our works. For the exhibition declaration at ICA, I will present the project that I started some years ago. It's called Esteban Radio. It's a free radio, actually, a podcast radio that everybody can contribute up. And uh, what you see when you enter into our room, it's uh, actually a mini radio station. You will find a table which reminds the very old-fashioned radio station and several uh, displays where you can also listen to previous contributions to the radio and you can record following very easy instructions from music to uh, debate, dialogue. You can leave a message for the others. The theme of declaration can be a starting point if they want or just a suggestion, but they are absolutely free to do what they want. I love how she creates these opportunities for you to be creative. Absolutely. And we're partnering with a local uh, community organized uh, radio station that will, I believe, be also doing a kind of best of compilation that they'll broadcast further. These were the true black people images. When I walked into the first gallery of the Posing Beauty show, I thought, there's so much familiar here. I knew many of the images, 
But better than that, I recognized the ones I hadn't seen before. And whether contrived or caught, journalistic or advertised or artistic or all of that at once, I wanted to mind test, to memory test, each one for authenticity. Authentic beauty, inner beauty, social beauty, defensive beauty, beauty as tool, as weapon, captured, held, immortalized, institutionalized, mainstreamed, bought, collected, interpreted, and re-delivered. And then we're also inviting several local colleagues who are you know, great conversationalists and interested in radio as a medium who will be hosting certain sessions over the run of the exhibition as well. So there'll be some curated conversations in addition to the more casual and completely public discussions. Congratulations on this project. I think it takes you up to a whole nother level of viewer engagement, I would say. There's so many dimensions to this. What do you think? No, absolutely. I mean, hopefully there aren't so many dimensions that are overwhelming, but we really did want to start with this primary declaration on the part of the ICI as part of our deriving sense of ourselves as an institution that we believe in the socially transformative power of art and artists, whether that takes the form of an encounter with a painting in the gallery or a performance out in the city, we want to be sure that we're providing a rich range of opportunities for people to connect with art and each other in ways that matter here and now. This is Fresh Art International. I'm Kathy Bird. In today's conversations about art that sparks social engagement, we introduce curators and artists who consistently seek ways to connect with individuals and communities in the world outside the art scene. We share their personal philosophies about social experiences and how they work alongside the infrastructure of museums and art biennials. We invite you to think about how these artists and curators have elected to pose enduring questions about the meaning of art in work that translates the diverse activities of labor unions, communal dinners, beer gardens, and political protests, they offer potent reminders of our collective capacity for change. To learn more, visit freshartinternational.com. You'll find more than 200 conversations with curators and artists from around the world anywhere you go for podcasts. We bring you stories of contemporary art and culture thanks to the contributions of listeners like you. And with funding from the Knight Foundation and Locust Project's Warhol-funded Wavemaker Grant. The Emily Hall Tremaine Foundation is one supporter of this program. For two decades, the Foundation's Exhibition Award offered select curators the unique opportunity and creative freedom to research redefine, and push new themes in contemporary art exhibitions. Two of the voices you heard today, Susan Cross and Stephanie Smith, received this prestigious award. Today's conversation is featured in Issue 7 of the Tremaine Foundation's new online periodical, Exhibitions on the Cusp. We're honored to be among the publication's contributors Thank you for listening. Join us every week for Contemporary Art Talk 